I was, <laughs> he's carrying his shoes back. I asked Seho, why didn't you put his shoes back on? He said it's, he said it's hard to tie that one. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. Uh, I remember it when I was, boy, when I was a freshman in college, I was playing basketball one day, and uh, I sprained my ankle real bad, and uh, I needed to go to class. My, my desire in college always was I, I want to have perfect attendance. I want to get a 4.0. I never wanted to cut class. I never wanted to short circuit the process of, of education and things. And um, <laughs> that was my goal at the beginning of every semester. Uh, I didn't reach it uh, very many times, but that was at least my goal. And so uh, when I sprained my ankle, I need to go to class. And so what do you do when you cannot get to the place you need to go? Well, a couple of things happened. One, the doctor gave me crutches. And two, my roommate, who was a big, strong, he was like 6'1", 240 pounds, strong, rock solid. He would carry me to class on his back. Uh, he was just a great friend. But I think about that as a great picture of what life is sometimes. You ever feel like you are in a certain place and you need to get to another place? Maybe for all intents and purposes. Again, uh, today, uh, maybe that place we need to get to is the place of prayer. Like, I know I need to get to that place to pray but I feel like I don't have the strength. I don't feel like I have the legs. I don't have the energy. I don't have, the, I don't have it in me to get to that place. Have you ever felt like that? Like, I know I've got to pray. Uh, some of you are stressed out about situations in life. You've got uh, family issues. You've got marital problems. You've got financial issues. You've got decisions that need to be made, and you just feel overwhelmed. And you know in your heart of hearts, because you've been to church, you know you've got to pray. But for the life of you, you can't get yourself to get into that place to pray. Have you ever felt like that before? What do you do? in times like that? I think the answers are the same. One, you get people to carry you there. John, uh, in Mark chapter 2, the paralytic, he could not get to where Jesus was. He needed people to carry him to Jesus. We need people like that. Paul, the apostle Paul, confesses that in almost every one of his letters. He says, pray for me. Paul needed that. I need that. You need that. That's why house churches are so vital, because in that place, we carry each other before Jesus and get each other to Jesus when we don't have the faith or the strength sometimes to get there. Not just spiritually, but emotionally, mentally, sometimes you don't have the strength to get there. And so you have people carry you into the presence of God. But the other thing that I think we need sometimes that we don't often use is we need crutches to get us there when we're all alone. And these crutches can come in the form of prayers that have been written and lifted up by countless people who've gone before us in the journey of faith. The book of Psalms is a great, is a great crutch that you can use to get into the presence of God in prayer when you don't feel like you've got the words, you don't feel like you've got the strength to get there. Another, uh, there, there are books of prayer like the Valley of Vision, great book of Puritan prayers, one of my favorites, that you pray these prayers for different situations and they get you into the presence of God and they give a voice to the cries of your heart, and they put words to it in a way that you couldn't. There's another prayer like that that we've been studying. It's called the Lord's Prayer. When I was in high school, I had a youth pastor, a female youth pastor. Her name was Mi Choi. And she said, I remember her saying, and I, I, I don't know why I still remember her saying that, but she said, sometimes when I don't have the energy to pray, I pray the Lord's Prayer. On my bed when I go to sleep, and I find that my heart oftentimes has been restored and renewed. And for 20-some years, I thought about that, that, about that statement. I was like, I don't get it. To me, the Lord's Prayer was something that I recited only when we had to. It was just kind of like saying a poem or saying a Pledge of Allegiance or whatever it is. It was just a bunch of words that I recited, but it never had that life-giving power to me. 
I don't know what your experience with the Lord's Prayer is. If you've experienced the power of change, I was reading this uh, from this book called uh, Philosophers Who Believe, and there's this philosopher named Mortimer Adler, and he talks about how he was just a, 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 a church-going Christian all of his life, but when he read the Lord's Prayer one day, and he was praying this prayer in honesty, he was sick, and a priest came over and was praying for him, and the only, he said, the only prayer I knew by heart was the Lord's Prayer. As he began praying that, he said, in that moment, something happened in his heart, and he said, faith was born in me that day. There's power in the prayer that the Lord Jesus taught to change hearts, to restore souls, to renew people's minds, and, and to leave us changed. There's power in this prayer. And for the life of me, for almost 40 years, I've never understood the life-giving power and the promises that these people talk about. But as I've been studying it the last few weeks, I'm beginning to realize, you know, that this prayer is like a stick of dynamite in my soul. It is powerful and amazing stuff. We've looked at two, two lines from it, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And in studying this, I feel like I could have preached 8, 10, 15 sermons on these things. So much has been left on the cutting room floor that I've only been able to bring a portion of it. But my prayer is that as we continue to engage and track with the Lord's Prayer today and over the next three weeks after today, that we would begin to be transformed continually in understanding the power that the Lord Jesus' prayer that he taught us has. Let's look at uh, Matthew 6, uh, verses 9 through 13. Again, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray, and the crowds of people who've gathered around the sea are listening and overhearing him. What does Jesus say? He teaches them how to pray in this way, Matthew 6, 9. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is God's word. Today, um, if you look at verse 10, this is where we're going we're to focus. Uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We've seen our Father in heaven. To whom are we praying? He's our Father in heaven. And what is the end goal of prayer? Hallowed be your name. The goal of prayer is that at the end of our prayers, if these prayers are answered the way we pray them, the goal of prayer is that God's name would become ultimate in our lives and in the lives of the people for whom we're praying. The next thing that we look at, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, explains how the name of God will be hallowed when his kingdom comes and his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a powerful prayer. What is so powerful about it? Why is it so powerful? Two thoughts. The first thing is that it changes our values so that we seek God's kingdom above our own. This is, how, this is the power of this prayer. It's powerful in that it changes our values, our priorities, our thoughts to seek God's kingdom, to build God's kingdom and not our own. When you, when you see these words, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What do you think? I think in, in any situation, right, take it away from its, its religious and spiritual context. If you're talking to anybody and you're saying, hey, um, let your name be ultimate. Okay? I want your kingdom to come. When you, when, in order for there to be a kingdom, there's got to be a king. And if it's your kingdom, right, David's kingdom, 
then it means that David is the king. If it's Sean's kingdom, that means Sean is the king. What does it mean that I want your name to be hallowed and your kingdom come? Saying, I want you to be the king. That's, it's simple, isn't it? And I want your will to be done, not my own. Think about this in any context. Right? You're hanging out with a bunch of friends. You say, okay, you know what, John? You're the king. You're the king. Uh, that means whatever you say goes. You're the sovereign. You're the ruler. You're the leader. We do whatever you want to do. It's your will. Right? Let your will be done, whatever you want to do. See, think about this in a marriage context. I say to Olivia, hey, what do you want to eat for dinner? And she says to me, oh, whatever you want. Right? You're, the, you're the boss tonight. Right? You're the king. Your will be done. And I say, okay, Pizza Hut it is. And she says, except for Pizza Hut. Okay, uh, Papa John's. I've got free Papa John's coupons. Papa John's uh, or, or Papa John's. NYPD, no, nah, I'm not really feeling pizza. If she says your will be done, then she means, she's got to mean that what I say goes, right? This is simple. You ever declare to anybody, you're the king, let your will be done, your name is going to be hallowed, then it follows that our lives would follow suit. Does it make sense then that we would pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, right? your kingdom come, your will be done, and we not want to follow his kingship in, his, in our lives? You cannot pray this prayer and separate it from the life that we live. And that's why this is so powerful. That's why it's so crazy. When we pray, your kingdom come, we're saying, God, I'm giving you the key to my life. You're the king, not me. It's no longer my little kingdom because at the end of it all, we're either living to build our kingdom or God's kingdom. Hey, think about it. Whose kingdom are your prayers building and whose kingdom is your life building? When people look at the tower that you're building at the end of it all, are they going to give praise to your name or are they going to give praise to the name of our God? Because it's one or the other. And the Bible constantly tells us the futility of building our own earthly kingdoms. You know, it, it, James, in James, it says that life is a vapor. Now, you don't, maybe on a day like today, you might see it here in Florida, but you breathe on a cold day and you see your breath and then it's gone just like that. That's all you are. That's your life. And you seek to build a name for yourself. You're here today, you're gone tomorrow. That's it. Ecclesiastes 9.5 says the memory of the dead is soon forgotten. So this week, right, Snape died, right? The cat who played Snape in Harry Potter. I don't, I don't, is that right? Right? Okay, so I don't know this guy's name. I never knew his name, but he, was a, he had his kingdom built. And yeah, Harry Potter fans were sad and universal. Maybe attendance rose this week, but that's it. People are going to forget who he was. They're going to remember the character maybe, but they're not going to remember his name. David Bowie died this week, and some of you are like, who's that? He was a big shot back about 20 years ago, but even the biggest shots of their kingdoms don't last forever. We build our kingdoms, but the Bible constantly tells us that you could build your kingdom, but it's futile to build a kingdom to your own name. My, my kids have been playing with, they got for Christmas, um, these, uh, this building toy set called Magnetiles. It's these magnet, magnetized tiles in which you can build houses and cars and all that stuff. And so they were playing on Friday, and, and they, they, oftentimes they try to build houses, and they try to build them as as high and tall as they can. They build these towers, and then once they're done, they've used all the pieces because there's only like 50 pieces. Once they've used all the pieces, they're like, Mom, Dad, come and take a picture, take a picture. 
And so in their yelling, not only do they get our attention to take a picture, but they get Elise's attention. And Elise thinks that the object of the game is to knock their tower down into as many pieces as quickly as she can. And so she does that, and it gets all scattered, and they start getting upset, and they start saying, Elise, you did this, you're so bad. And I recognize because of this simple fact, they're neither good enough, smart enough, nor strong enough to build a kingdom that is not going to fall. The smallest and weakest of them all in our family is able to cause their kingdom to come tumbling down. The same with us. That we build our kingdoms. We build our kingdoms on wealth. We were talking with someone the other, the other day, and they're talking about how in this, this one group of their friends, say people are making eighty, hundred thousand dollars a year, no problem. Going to church, doing their church thing, and all of a sudden they get laid off from their job. And we've got jobs, right? We have jobs and we're paying our mortgage, we're doing our stuff, we're paying our car bill. What if that job is gone? What if you get laid off? What if the economy takes it down and all that is gone? You've built your kingdom on what? All that's there, and then it comes crumbling down. And they, the, the people were talking, and they said the, the great thing about that was that they began to realize that everything comes from God. It's not worth it to build my own kingdom. It's not worth it. Whose kingdom are you building, child of God? Whose kingdom are you building with your finances? Whose kingdom are you building with your talents, with your fame, with your reputation? All of that, where is that going? To whose name? To the greatness of what? But what happens if we begin to live for the sake of the kingdom of God? And our, our, we pray this prayer with genuineness. Lord, let your kingdom come. And we begin to pray this in an honest way. What would, begin, what would happen? You begin to live for the kingdom of God. I don't know if you, you saw this PBS special that aired um, that was tracing the family history of famous Americans. Uh, it was on PBS, on, on public broadcasting. And they wanted to get one pastor in there. And so they asked Rick Warren. He's a pastor of Saddleback Church in California, uh, he wrote Purpose Driven Life, Purpose Driven Church. And so they, they interviewed him. And in order to, to trace a family history, what they needed to do is they needed to do a DNA test. They took a, a Q-tip and they swabbed the inside of his cheek. And then through DNA testing, they began to trace his family tree. But you know what we found, what they found, and they aired this on TV. They said for a thousand years, they found generation after generation after generation, after generation of people who lived for the kingdom of God and gave everything that they had to make Jesus famous. He is the, the most influential pastor in America, if not the world. Why? He gives away over 90% of his income. He lives on a reverse tithe of 10%. The Lord has blessed him with favor. Why? Because generations have sowed into the sake of of the kingdom of God. Right, these people who die without knowing the Lord, their memory is soon forgotten, but the lives of the righteous and the faithful who live for the kingdom, their lives continue to echo, continue to reverberate, continue to make a difference in the lives of people. And maybe you are, you don't know your ancestors beyond your great-great-great-grandparents, but maybe you're one of these people who are supremely blessed because there have been generations of people who have been living for the sake of the kingdom. And maybe you're one of these people who you're the first believer in your family. What, what, what if you began this chain? And you began living not for the sake of your own name, but you began living for the name of Jesus, to build his kingdom, 
See, what does it mean when you pray your kingdom come? This language goes all the way back to the Old Testament. In those days, a king of a, of a certain territory would be, uh, would be known. They would make images and, and statues of him, and they would place these images all around so that wherever people went, they would see his image, and they would say, this belongs to uh, the domain of, of this king. This is what God means when he says, be fruitful. He made them in his image, and he said, be fruitful and multiply. He said, build my kingdom. This is what we pray. This is what we say. This is what we live when we say, let your kingdom come and let your will be done. That means, God, wherever I am, I want to see, not only wherever I am, but wherever my prayers reach. Now, you can change the world through this prayer. Wherever my prayers go, to North Korea, let your kingdom reign. To Iraq, let your kingdom reign. To Iran, let your kingdom reign. We, we, we praise God for the freeing of, of, of the pastor who's been held in Iraq for all these years, right? Let your kingdom reign in, in China, Japan, in Africa, in the middle, wherever. God, let your kingdom go forth and let it begin in my own heart. Be the king of my life. Be the king of my heart so that your name would be hallowed through me. The first, this is why this prayer is so powerful. It reorients our priorities so that our focus becomes not on the things of life, not on our name, but on the name of Jesus. The second thing that we see here, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Second thing, the reason this prayer is so powerful is that it brings the reality of heaven down to earth. The reality of heaven is brought down to earth. This is crazy stuff. Let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is it? What is it? look like in heaven. Over the, the summer, my family was, was able to, to take a trip up to Virginia. Um, I don't remember what it was for. I think it was just, we just went on vacation. And as we're coming back, it was the five of us. It was Olivia and then Manny, who was probably five at the time. Elijah was two and, and Elise was one. We were coming back on the airplane from uh, Dulles, I'm sorry, from, from D.C., where, uh, Reagan National Airport, down to Orlando. And we landed in Orlando and we're waiting to get off the plane. And this elderly lady is kind of standing up, waiting. She looks at our kids and looks at us, and she said, your children were so good. And then this is what she said. She said, they are angels. And I looked behind my kids. I was like, who could she possibly be talking about? <laughs> and then I realized she was talking about our kids. I said, are you serious? <laughs> do, you, do you even know what an angel is? Do you know what an angel, like, have you ever seen an angel? Do you have any idea what you possibly are saying at this point in your, I mean, I know it's late, you've been on an airplane, but you, you've been smoking something because there's no way that I would consider my kids to be angels. Why? I didn't say that to her. I said, well, praise God, thank you. Thank you very much. That's awfully kind of you. But I thought to myself, why was I so angry? Why, why do I get so angry when I hear that my kids are angels? Not because I don't want them to be, because I know what the Bible says angels are like. What are they like? They obey instantly. They obey without making excuses. They obey without complaining. They obey without saying the other angel's not doing it. They obey joyfully. They obey gladly. They obey completely all the time. And when Jesus says, pray that God's will be done on earth, as it is in heaven. That's what we're praying. 
say, God, I want your will to be done on earth. Not only in these places that I prayed for, but particularly in my own life. This is a life-changing prayer. It's a life-changing prayer. If you knew the will of God, would you obey as it is in heaven, instantly, joyfully, gladly, without complaining? The, the fact of the matter is, there's several realities that complicate this idea of living out the will of God. So here's the first reality, that God has a will. It encompasses a whole world, even our own lives. The second thing that we've got to understand is that we also have a will. That we've got a will of what we desire our lives to look like. The third thing that we have to understand is that God's will, according to Romans 12, 2, is that God's will is good, it's pleasing, and it's perfect. That means, number four, that if our will and God's will are not the same, then our will is not good, it will not be pleasing, and it is imperfect. The fifth reality is that oftentimes our will and the will of God are at loggerheads. They collide with each other. And the sixth thing that we have to understand is that our lives will be stinky unless we align our lives with the will of God. It's pretty clear. I mean, these are the realities of life. And some of us are living lives that we think, quite frankly, are pretty stinky right now because we've gone outside of the bounds of the will of God. And we're seeking to live our own will rather than the will of God who loves us and who's a father in heaven. Not only loving, but powerful and wise and able to do everything that he intends in our lives. Probably one of the biggest questions that I get asked when people want to meet is, I want to know the will of God. What is the will of God? What does he want? And if I feel like I want to be snarky or if I feel like I want to be helpful, depending, the answer is the same. You want to know the will of God? Here's the will of God. You want to know the will of God? I'll tell you plainly. It's in this book. Right? Here's the will of God. And no, 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 I know that, but I want to know the will of God for my life. I understand. You want to know the will of God for your life? Here, it's, it's in this book. And they get frustrated. Why? Because I, I, I understand. There are two kinds, and we, we, you've heard this before, but there are two kinds of of ways that we talk about the will of God. There's the revealed will of God, right? Oh, that's here. It's revealed. Here, what does God want? He wants us to be saved. He wants us to be sanctified. He wants us to be like Christ. He wants us to be sexually pure. He wants us to be generous. He wants us to give our lives away. These are things that the will of God reveals, clearly. It's the will of God revealed. But what we often want to know is, what is the will of God that is concealed to me? As the Bible says, the secret things belong to God, right? and he will not reveal them until it's time. You, know, you want to know how to understand the concealed will of God, that which you don't know, like where should I live, who should I marry, should I date now, what college should I go to, what job should I get, what should I major in? You know how you know the, the concealed will of God? It's when you know and live the revealed will of God. The more you live this will of God out, the more God will open your eyes to see that which you do not see right now. What he does not want is for you simply to know the will of God so that you can okay, I know God wants me to move to Alaska. That's cool. Or I know God wants me to go to missions. He wants me to go to the Middle East. I know that. He doesn't want you to just know it. He wants you to approve it, to test and approve Romans 12 too, so that you can then go and do it. 
God doesn't care that you know all of the answers. He wants us to live it out. The desire of God is not simply that we'd understand so that we can decide whether I want to live out the will of God or not. He wants us to do it. A lot of us, are, we, we compromise certain values because, uh, like Jonathan said, we want to remain comfortable. I don't want to be in this uncomfortable place of waiting. And so we jump the gun to do something that we know we ought not to do because that's more comfortable. And then we move outside of what God wants us to do. And then we get frustrated. We know that the will of God is you've got to wait. Okay? Wait for a Christian woman. Wait for a Christian man to come into your life. But you don't want to wait because the comfortable thing is to go with this dude who's, who's calling me out or to go with this girl who I think is giving me the eye. I'm going to follow. But you know the will of God says don't do that. And so what do you do? His desire is not so for us simply to know. It's so that we would do it and live it and follow him. That's why it's so important. I would never, man, word to the wise here. You want to know what you should do in life? Don't solicit advice if you want to do the will of God from people who are not in the word of God and who are not praying. Let me say that again. You you want to know, okay, you want to know what the will of God is for my life in a certain situation. Don't go asking people who don't read the word, who don't pray. Uh, You ask people who are drawing from a pool, a well of wisdom that comes from the word of God and from prayer. That means if you're a house church leader, you're a Bible study teacher, you want to be used by God, you want to be used by God, you got to be in the word of God. You got to be praying. That's that's the, the word of God and prayer, the word of God and prayer. You never grow outside of these things, right? This is it, right? This is it. And in here is revealed the will of God. And so as we follow, as we live in obedience, We can find his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The will of God to follow is not easy. I know that. You know that. Can I tell you a a story that might be interesting to you? It's interesting to me because it's from my life. When I was actually in 96, I went to Urbana. 1996, I went to Urbana. That's how many years ago? Years ago. So I went to Urbana, and in that place, okay, 20,000 people, one of the main teachings that I got out of that was that on a college campus, okay, international students, the elite of the world, are coming to your doorstep. So at my university, man, we had elite students from China, from, from Ghana, uh, from different places, and they were all converging on campus, and some of them were in my small group. And so it was time, it was the middle of the semester, right around this time, January, where I felt like God was saying, uh, invest into the international students on campus. I was a junior in college, about to be a senior. And so for me, what that meant was I felt the will of God was that I should apply to live in this international housing. It's called the Mosaic House. You apply to live there, and uh, they pick people from all around the world to have this global community. And so my buddies, I'd been living with them for for four years, uh, for three years. They said, hey, why don't you stay with us, re-up with us, and and we can, you know, fourth year, man, let's let's make sure we, we do it right. And so I was torn between living with my guys. I mean, great guys. They're all in ministry right now. Versus going to what I felt God was calling me to do, right? Live at this mosaic house. And as I was praying to God, I said, Lord, you know, I want to be used on this campus. I want to leave this place and, and, and be a better place. I want to impact nations through my obedience to you. And so I said, God, uh, if you really want me to go and live in the mosaic house, and this is, I, I just laid it out there. I said, God, I really, you know, for the last three years, I've wanted to live by my, have a single room so I can I have unhindered devotion to you. I can pray. I can worship. I can do all these things. That's all I ask is for a single room. And I'll live in the Mosaic House. I applied. We heard back. Uh, I got accepted into the Mosaic House. And I applied for a single room, right? Everybody wants a single. 
And they told me that, maybe, I, don't, I don't know the time period, but a, a month before I had to turn in my deposit to live there, I was number eight on the waiting list for a single. That means eight people who requested a single had to say, yeah, never mind, I want to die. I'll live with a roommate. And so I kept on praying. My friends are like, dude, we got to turn in our deposit to the apartment also. Thinking, praying, thinking, praying. I get, I get an email, and they said, okay, you're number five on the waiting list for a single. The week before, I was number three on the waiting list. Number three on the waiting list. The day that I needed to turn in my deposit, I was number one on the waiting list. What do you do? What do you do? Honestly, man, I'd much rather live with my friends. I didn't want to live with people who I didn't know. I, I felt like that was a call of God in my life, but I didn't, want to, I didn't want to do that. It's easier to go with these guys. Number one on the waiting list. I waited as long as I could, and then got down to like 10 minutes left, and I called them. I said, can you tell me where I am? They said, you're still number one on the waiting list. You know what I did? And when I signed a deposit, put in a deposit with my friends to live with them. And so my fourth year, my fifth year, I lived with my buddies. So what's the point of the story? Well, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? That semester came and went. Fourth year started. I forgot to mention that I had gotten the name of my roommate right, for a double, and then I was at when I asked for a single. His name was David. I asked some people. We didn't have Facebook. Couldn't stalk him or anything, so I stalked him the way we did back then. You ask people. <laughs> you know David from such and such? And there was one person who knew, and they said, dude, this guy is crazy. Like, he's mentally crazy. Like, he literally is the kind of person that will commit mass murder. That's what they said. And so that, to me, I was like, okay, yeah, yeah. That's better reason for me to want to go and live with my buddies. So fourth year, rolls around, get in, and I talked to some people who were living at the Mosaic House. I said, hey, what's going on, and how's David doing? And this is what they said. The first week of school, this guy David, who's going to be my roommate, Living in a double, right? Two people lived in that room. First week of school, David dropped out of school and went to live back home in Africa. And they said, this guy, who would have been me, had a double room all to himself that whole year. <laughs> Dang. So, I felt like God was saying, see, trust me. And you can trust me. But it was hard. I, I didn't feel any, any rebuke. I didn't feel any like, ah, you, none of that. I felt this gentle, loving voice. I wish I could say from that day forward, I never doubted God again, but it's not like that. It's hard. To, to, to live there means I would have had to say goodbye to some of my friends, at least in terms of where I lived. To follow the will of God is not easy. But that's what we say, because the will of God is good and is pleasing and is perfect. In the grand scheme of things, you know, I don't know what would have happened if I had lived at the Mosaic House, and I'm not one to, I don't think I need to think or speculate about that, because God uses our crooked lines to draw straight, whatever it is. He's done that, okay? That's fine. But can we trust that the will of our Father is the best for us? When push comes to shove and it gets down to the way that we live life, are you okay having your kingdom fall and your will abandoned in order that you could be abandoned to the will of God wherever he wants you to go? 
that if you're wanting to, to, to go somewhere that he doesn't want you to go, are you okay saying your will above all else? My purpose remains. The art of losing myself and bringing you praise, that your name is hallowed. Are we okay? Can we trust that the will of God is good and pleasing and is perfect? Because we need to trust that. Because it's not easy to follow his will. If anyone tells you that it's easy to do the will of God, then I invite you to invite them to come and look into the Lord Jesus right after he washed his disciples' feet, went into a garden, this solitary, single figure, hunched over in darkness, prostrate, praying, sweating in anguish, asking if it's possible for the Father to remove the cup of wrath that symbolized his will. You go and look at Jesus, and then you tell your friends you think this is easy. Sweating in anguish to the point where sweat becomes blood, where his whatever it is, capillaries begin to bust, and blood begins to pour down. And he says, if there's any other way, if there's a way to avoid doing it this way, then, Father, let the cup of your wrath pass from me. But not my will, but yours be done, he cried. Why did he sweat? Tears of blood at the will of God. He had countless angels at his disposal. If Jesus had said one word, they would have come and they destroyed everything. Why? Because he knew the will of God, because it ran through his heart, because he knew the word of God. And he'd read the scroll of Isaiah. And he read that like a sheep before her shears is silent. So Jesus did not open a word to open his mouth to defend himself. He knew that it was the will of God that he would be pierced for our iniquities. He'd be crushed for our sins. That the punishment that brings us peace would be upon him. Because we all like sheep had gone astray. And each of us had turned to our own way. And the Lord laid on this man, the Lamb of God, the iniquity of us all. You think it's going to be easy to do the will of God. You don't know biblical Christianity. And I think what God is trying to do, and I really believe this with all of my heart, that there is an attack on the life of Christ in believers throughout the globe. And this half-hearted, wishy-washy Christianity is not going to stand in a tribulation of fire, my friends. I think God is stealing us and preparing us to be a people of courage to stand in the face of persecution when it begins coming on our doorstep, which it soon will. Cultural Christianity is not going to handle, is not going to stand up. We've got to know in our heart of hearts that we're willing to say, even if I have nothing but you, Jesus, that's all I need. Everything, your money is not going to keep you from an attack. Your wealth, your fame, your status, these towers that we build are not going to keep us from an attack. The only thing, living in the will of God, his good, pleasing, and perfect will, Whatever it takes, whatever it costs to follow Jesus, no turning back. That's the call that God is placing upon us in these latter days, in this generation. He's calling the people to rise up in faith, to be who God has called us to be. I know that, man, as, as I call, man, and I am calling us to follow and to build the kingdom of God and to live out the will of God through our building project. I'm calling us to do that because if not, if not us, then who? If it's not us who are the church, who's going to do it? For us to begin to realize that everything I give, God always has a way because, you see, Jesus didn't, his, the will of God did not end at Calvary. Why is it that we say the angels roar 
for Christ our King. Because death couldn't hold him down. There was more to the picture. There's a resurrection and there's an ascension and there's more to our lives than just what we see. It's so much more than this. And you have to follow the will of God. It's good. It's pleasing. It's perfect. Oftentimes it's hard. But God says the sacrifice is never the end. God always has a way. Man, if I'd lived at that mosaic house, I'd have followed the will of God and God would have poured all kinds of grace into my life. What would it look like for us to say, okay, with my life, with my, with my bank account, with my credit card, with my life, with my finances, God, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. What would it look like? We can begin to imagine and dream that through our giving and through our sacrifice and through our generosity, a building is built. And again, it's not about a building. It's about what happens through it. That one of your friends, right, you grew up in church, you grew up in our youth ministry with them, you're, the dudes that you ran with, you invite them out to church for the first day that we have worship service in there. And they say, you know what? Because it's the first day I'll come. I'll check it out. They come back and in that place, they begin to experience what they experienced when they were young. And they begin to break down and they say, you know what? I'm going to give my life back to the Lord. Can you put a worth, can you put a dollar value on that? Your friend coming back to the Lord. One day as the gym opens up and we, we play volleyball, we play basketball, this girl comes in and she's invited because her friend. She said, I never go to a church, but a gym I'll go to. Go to a gym and in that place because she's been hurt, she comes, says, I'm only going to play and I'm going to leave. And as she plays, she begins to experience the love of the church in a way that she's never experienced before. And she says, man, there's something healing about the people that I've met here. And she comes back and she comes back and she comes back. And then six months later on Easter Sunday, you stand with her as she gets baptized. What if that's your daughter? What dollar value would you put on that? That's your best friend. That's your brother. That's your sister. The incalc you cannot put worth on the value of a human soul, of a marriage being healed, a, a, a person's broken life being healed. Is there a price that you could put on that? I want to encourage us to, to live and to let the things that God has given us, has blessed us with, to not just end with our own lives and to die with a trust fund after it all, a retirement, an IRA that dies with us. We can't take any of that with us. But to begin to think what could look like if I gave now. Thought about what it would look like. Instead of going out as a family once a week, 20 bucks a week. Began to build bridges for the sake of the law. Do you think we would regret that at the end of the day? Do you think we would have regrets when we stand before our maker and we see the people who've come to know the Lord because of the bridges that we built? As people stepped across us, and entered into glory. We never lose when we give to God. We never lose. You could shovel as much as you want. God will shovel back, and his shovel is that much bigger than yours. Two years ago when we began, I must stop talking, but two years when we began, uh, we made a video that tried to explain what we're trying to do. And I haven't seen it in over a year because we took it down because of security reasons. Um, but we're going to play this video and um, the brother who made it is overseas. Uh, you know him. He's overseas, and we're talking this morning, and he said, man, I watched this, and I cringe. It's like, ah, I could make it so much better now. But 
As we watch it, let's be reminded. Some of you are going to look a lot younger than you used to. But let's be reminded of what God has called us to and why we build these bridges. Welcome to Harvest. We are a multicultural, intergenerational, house church-based congregation. We exist to glorify God by equipping Christ-centered leaders to transform the world. The pages of our story are covered by God's faithfulness from where we began to the orange grove we now call home. From those who have entered glory to those that will reflect His glory. With each passing page, we've been growing. Growing physically, leads to the next chapter in the story. With a maxed out worship room, we feel the call to expand. We will be constructing a new worship center in the memory of Pastor Kenny, but we believe we're doing much more than just putting up a building. We're building bridges. pray together. Guys, we only have one life to live. I don't know if God's will for you means that you give to this project, but what I do know is that the will of God and the Word of God tells us that He desires us to be generous. 
that he desires for us to store up treasures in heaven, that he desires us to excel in the grace of giving. You know that the word of God tells us that Jesus Christ, who is rich beyond measure, gave it all up and became poor so that we, through him, might become rich. I know that God tells us not to worry. He says to test me that if you give at least your 10%, would God not throw open the storehouses? I know that we can never lose when we give to God. So as we pray, I want to encourage us to think, what does it mean for us to live for the name of God? To live for his kingdom come. To live for his will to be done on earth in your life as it is in heaven. And so as we just quietly pray to God, if you feel uh, you, know, you want to do this now or you want to do it during your offering time, you, if you're a harvester, you know, I think this is uh, something that God may be putting on all of our hearts if this is our church, right? Because the place we give ought to be to the place that we gain our spiritual nourishment from. And so if this is your church, and I think this is your call, we pray, you know, part of your prayer can be to fill out this pledge card. Part of it can be asking God, you know, Lord, how much do you want? What do you want from me? But I want to encourage us between now and the time we leave here today to really think, how can I give in order that bridges might be built? And as you walk out of here today, there's going to be a box. You can just drop that in. You don't have to leave any, uh, you know, there's a place for credit card information. You don't want to do that now. You can, you can just go directly to the website and do that. But if God is convicting your heart, let's not delay. Let's live obedient to the call of God. We never lose when we give to God. We never lose when we put God first able to keep us in his embrace. Let's pray, whether that be praying out loud or praying quietly or praying as you fill out a card, however you need to pray. Let's spend a few moments in responding to God and we'll uh, continue to respond in Father in heaven, we've given you our songs and we've given you our attention. In a moment, we're going to give you a part of ourselves, the place where Jesus said closely reflects our heart, our treasure, our finances. 
as we give of that, may it not be a substitution or a replacement for our lives, but may it be an expression of our lives. That we would give knowing that you will always, always, always see the seeds that we sow and that you are faithful to care for us. Call some of us to take steps of faith. Call others of us to wrestle and then to respond. Lord, may you be honored in us. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth in my life as it is in heaven where the angels gladly, joyfully, completely live in obedience to what you desire. Thank you so much. We do our calculations at the cross in view of the gospel where we can say that you love us and we can respond by saying we love you in return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.